Thank you, Sarah, for reading that text, which gives a context to the parable that we're going to look at uh, here today. I also want to say good morning. It's good to be with you, those who are in the room, and also those that I can't see who are online. Uh, It's just uh, good to be together again, uh, worshiping God and studying Scripture together. You know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, fairness uh, seemed to be a big deal, and I think kids generally... Uh, have this innate desire or this innate, maybe it's an ability to uh, seek out, sniff out fairness because fairness matters when you're a kid in lots of different ways. And I remember my brother who I'm closest to, he's a year older than me, when him and I were growing up, we had this thing that we did when we were left with the last piece of chocolate cake or the last fresh bun that my mom had baked or a chocolate bar or something that we were told that we had to share we had this thing that we, one of us would quickly say, okay, you cut, I pick. And it was like the wisdom of Solomon for 10-year-olds, right? And it was this whole thing of we wanted to make sure that somebody didn't get a bigger piece than the other, and so the way you do it is you make that person cut it, and then I get to pick which one. And so it was our attempt at that kind of fairness that we, I think, so desire as a kid. Well, fairness seems to be a big deal for us in human desires, but one of the things that we see as we read Scripture, and again, when we look at the parable today, is that fairness doesn't quite matter so much to Jesus and the kingdom of God, at least in the ways that we might think in our human terms. And what's really interesting and maybe even really unsettling uh, as we look at this is, is in terms of fairness is, is what is it that's revealed in our hearts? And it's that that I think matters far more to Jesus, and again, in our parable, we will see that, that that matters far more to Jesus about what is it that rises up within our hearts when fairness kind of isn't at play in one way or another. Jesus had a way of holding up the mirror. Uh, Jesus had a way of unsettling people, of changing the way they thought through the stories that he told. And I'm uh, sure that maybe... You folks don't struggle with this, but, but one of the things that I struggle with as I think about my own life and as I've had this nagging question in my life for years is, is how do I change me? And that, that whole idea that the leadership of one, the leadership of ourselves, is oftentimes the most difficult leadership challenge that we face. And, and Jesus told parables that, that change people. And so how is it that we change ourselves? And so sometimes when we give up on this uh, impossible task of changing ourselves, we go to what we think will be an easier task, and so we go about trying to change the people around us, right? Especially the people that we love, and we often know how well that goes. You know, for those who get married, sometimes we have these grand plans to change the other, which has often been tried and seldom succeeded, And we think, well, if we just say it one more time, if we say it maybe a little bit more pointedly, maybe even a little bit louder, then we will get the truth across and their eyes will be opened and they will see and understand what we've been saying all along. So we keep trying that approach, don't we? People try it on social media all the time. Let's just shout louder. Let's just speak more pointedly. Let's just use harsher words. Doesn't really work so well there either. But what if we simply tried to outserve each other rather than trying to change them? What if we tried to break this crazy cycle of nagging the other all the time into change, but rather than doing that to serve those around us with love and with thankfulness? You know, as we look at Jesus, he didn't just get meaner or talk louder or attack people. Jesus had a different approach. He approached 
the people that he loved with his sacrificial service, even to the point of the cross, the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And he told stories. He told parables. He told challenging stories, sometimes confusing stories, but stories that confronted people, confronted their assumptions, confronted their priorities, confronted all kinds of things about them. Jesus told more parables than anyone, and it was his favorite teaching medium. So Jesus wanted to change people's minds about the kingdom of God. He wanted to change people's minds about maybe even how they saw their own lives. And he, he was all about the kingdom of heaven because it was a big deal, and he wanted them to see and understand that. And we've been talking about that for the last months as we've been looking at uh, this kingdom story from the gospel of Matthew, and now this summer looking at kingdom parables. And so we know that the kingdom of heaven is subversive, meaning it at times it feels like it's almost rebellious to the world and it goes so counter to the ways of the world. And sometimes it's described and we see it as this upside-down kingdom, which is so opposite of the ways of the world. But maybe in reality what Jesus is actually doing is he's turning the world right side up. We just don't see it for that initially. And one of the most obvious and most powerful examples of that, as one commentator says, is that the paradigm of power is turned upside down so that the apparent weakness of a human on a cross is the greatest display of power that the world has ever known. And so ultimately, when Jesus goes to the cross, it's this most powerful expression of turning the world right side up in a way that we don't often recognize. And so in almost every parable, the way that the kingdom of heaven comes to earth is counterintuitive. It's not the way that we think. As Jody talked about last week in her message, maybe we got it wrong. And that's oftentimes the case. As you even look at the disciples, they often got it wrong when Jesus taught them in parables and they, they were trying to understand. And, and so we realize that we have to pause and ask some deeper questions. Well, we also see through parables that the kingdom of heaven is irrepressible. It's untamable. It's unruly. You can't stop it. It pervades every area, every corner of the kingdom. It's like the yeast that works its way through the dough in a way that is so pervasive. We also know that the kingdom of heaven is invaluable, that we've, what we value on earth isn't often anything like what God values in the kingdom. It's like the pearl of great price. We know that the kingdom of heaven is mysterious. And in our Western world, when we think about mystery, we often think about mystery as being something that we need to solve. It's a problem or a puzzle that we need to solve. And yet in the Eastern minds and the people who are originally listening to Jesus at this time, a mystery is something to behold. It's more something to hold and to turn over and to contemplate and to reflect on, not just a problem to be solved and resolved. And maybe it's like those uh, images that have hidden pictures within them. You may be seeing those. Some of you maybe love those where you can't really see what's going on and then all of a sudden you see it. And you see what's on in that picture, hidden in that picture, and you see it for the first time. And, and once you see it, you can't not see it. Like now it's just so obvious to you. And you wonder, how is it that you couldn't see it initially? So Jesus spoke in parables. I am, uh, I'm in agreement with one commentator, uh, Rodney Reeves, who says that if he would have been and if I would have been one of those disciples, I too would have probably walked around with my most common response to Jesus and his teaching as being simply a shrug of the shoulders, kind of a screwed up face, and just going kind of like, huh? Like, what does that even mean? 
And the disciples often had that response in one way or another. And I think I too would often have that kind of response. And so the parables both conceal and reveal the kingdom at the same time, which is part of the beauty of the parables. They read us as we read them. They work on us as we work on them. And as we turn them in our hands and as we hold them in front of us and as we contemplate them. And so parables need to humble us, make us curious. They need to change us as we enter in. But parables are not also just about the listeners. They are about more than the listeners. They are about God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. As Jesus often said, even in the parable today, he begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on and he tells a story. And Jesus often emphasized the little things of the kingdom, the hidden things. He talked about nets underwater, seeds underground, about yeast that isn't visible or even that you can't even taste. And he talked about the mustard seed size of faith. But Jesus knew that things wouldn't stay hidden or small, but that the kingdom would grow and that it would move forward in a way that is relentless and unstoppable and unfaltering. And even to the point where it would outlast the Roman Empire and take over the world as an unstoppable movement of the church that continues to this day and extends into eternity. And so parables teach us about God and about his kingdom, and they teach us about ourselves. Well, before we read our parable from Matthew 20, let's look again. I want to just touch on a couple of things from the text that Sarah read and uh, at the end of Matthew 19 and encourage you to turn and to look there. The end of Matthew 19, it kind of sets up the parable that Jesus teaches that is our focus today. And so the rich were seen as having been blessed by God. In this culture, they would have been seen as people who had much blessing, and the poor not so much. And so when a rich man comes up to Jesus looking for help, it kind of comes as a surprise as the disciples are listening in on this story, and the rich man asks Jesus about what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? What good deed must I do, is what the rich man says. And Jesus says in response, he says, why ask me about what is good? But rather, he says, there is only one who is good. And so Jesus, even there, he kind of turns it around on him and he makes it clear that it's not about what you do as much about who Jesus is and what he has done. But then it's almost like Jesus says, well, okay, if you want to go down that road, though, if that's where you're heading, then let's go down that road. And he says, well, then keep the commandments. And then the rich man asks him, well, which commandments? And Jesus goes on and he lists about half the commandments, but he lists the last half of the commandments that we see in Scripture. And the rich man is kind of relieved and he says, well, hey, you know what? It's, it's good news. I actually keep all those. I'm good. And then Jesus kind of gets to the heart of the matter. And without actually saying the first and second commandments, he gets right to the core of what they are because he says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, Store up treasure in heaven and follow me. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's testing the first two commandments of, you may not have any other God but me, and don't make for yourselves an idol. And he's getting to the heart of this man and what the idols are deep within his heart. What's interesting is Peter is listening to this interaction with this man, and then Peter asks this astoundingly honest question, and I, I love the honesty. That's one of the things I've always loved about Peter, is he's just so erratic at times, and he, he asks what other people have on their mind, but they're too afraid to say it, and he's one who just blurts it out. And he says, we've given up everything to follow you. 
And you kind of go, okay, really? Well, no, not yet. You haven't. And then he says, what will we get? What will we get? What's our share? What's in it for us? You know, we've, we've given up some stuff. We've followed you. We've persevered. We've let go of things. So what will we get is what Peter says. You know, how is it that Jesus didn't just smack him right there? Like the grace of God so evident right in that text. And Jesus gives this generous response. He says, you will receive 100 times as much in return and eternal life. But the returns are different than you think. And again, if the goal is transformation, if the goal is a changed mind, if the goal is a changed heart and a submitted life, submitted to the Lordship of Christ, then Jesus doesn't just talk louder, doesn't even rebuke him, it seems, doesn't preach a sermon, he tells a parable in chapter 20. He tells this parable of the vineyard and the workers, and it grows out of this encounter of Jesus and the rich man and Peter's reaction. Now, what's interesting, and what I want you to see before, again, we read the parable, we're getting to it, is that this parable is an inclusio. It has an inclusio uh, around it, meaning there are, there's a, a scripture in front of it and behind it that sort of bookend it. And, and so it kind of contains it, and it's found, uh, the phrases are in verse 19, verse 30. It says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And at the very end of the parable, Jesus says a very similar thing. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And he's pointing to this kingdom turned right side up that feels upside down to the culture of that time and to the culture of our day as well. Because you see, the prevailing dictum at that time, similar to today probably, would be that ruling, not serving, is what is the best place to be. I mean, that is what we desire. That's what we want to have in place, that we are in the ruling place, that we are in control, as opposed to just simply serving. But Jesus gives a very different ambition and value. And so the disciples, they're scrambling for, even in the beginning of chapter 18 of Matthew, it's like, who's greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus, or Peter, saying, what will we get? And yet Jesus teaches some very different things of giving up yourselves for the benefit of the others. And then he tells this story, Matthew 20. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace, and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them that he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. And so they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. And at 5 o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around, and he asked them, why haven't you been working today? And they replied, because no one has hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. And when those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage, which in some translations identifies it as a denarius. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a, daily, a day's wage. And when they received their pay, they protested to the owner, or in some translations, they grumbled to the owner. Those people worked only an hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. And Jesus answered, uh, he answered one of them, the landowner, or the foreman said, he says, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should, I be, should you be jealous because I am kind to others? 
So those who are now, who are last now, will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So the vineyard, it represents this sphere of worldly activity, of human activity, of economics, of, of work, and so on. And as I mentioned, in the ancient world, this denarius was uh, considered a, a normal day's wage that t- people would typically get. And the workday was divided into about three-hour segments. There was a segment from 6 in the morning till 9, from 9 till noon, from noon till 3, from 3 till 6. And that was kind of the the way that it worked. People would go into the, the market square and they would just hire people for day's work of what they needed and they would do it kind of in those three-hour segments. It was kind of typical of what they would do. And so you can understand that when the people were hired at 5 o'clock, which leaves only one hour left of that last three-hour segment, uh, it's kind of uh, a, an odd thing to do. It's like, why would you hire people so late in the day when there's only an hour left? I think as you read that parable, it's probably safe to surmise that these were not the most desirable workers. You know, why aren't you working? Well, no one hired us. Probably a good reason for that, maybe. Um, But some of the workers had been at it since 6 a.m. And these, we'll call them kind of the lame workers, had only worked an hour. And if they're like some workers, you know, by the time they went to the bathroom, by the time they got their work clothes on, by the time they responded to some social media posts, You know, there's probably only about 40 minutes left to work anyway, so they didn't even probably work an hour. And then comes the paycheck at the end of the day. And the way it's set up, with the early workers watching as the foreman pays the ones who were hired on last, it's interesting. And you wonder, well, what's up with that? Why did Jesus tell the story in this way? It feels a little bit like a setup, which I think it is, to reveal their hearts. They didn't expect that they would be treated like everyone else, the ones who were hired first. They expected that they would get more. If the one-hour workers got a full day's wage, imagine what they would get. This must be a really generous landowner. You can almost see them kind of wringing their hands and going, wow, like those people got a full day's wage for like an hour of work. Imagine what we're going to get. And then they simply get what was agreed upon at the beginning of the day. Nothing more, nothing less. And they start to complain and protest and grumble. They thought they were treated unjustly simply because they were treated like everyone else. And then their hearts are revealed with this grumbling. You ever grumble? We don't grumble, do we? When someone else gets that promotion that should have been yours, when someone else is able to take that vacation annually that you could never afford, When someone else gets healed of cancer and your loved one dies. When someone else is able to have a family and you're not able to. When someone else has spiritual gifts or leadership gifts that you wish that you had. When someone else seems to have everything they touch turned to gold and that everything that you kind of touch and hold in your hand seems to turn to dust. And then you feel that thing start to rise within you a little bit. You're not exactly even sure what it is, but it just starts to kind of rise up within you. You can't really name it. You can't really even see it for what it is, but it just kind of feels dark and heavy, and there's even a little bit of bitterness and anger attached to it that you start to recognize, and you start to see it for what it is, and it's called envy. And it's the reason that those who are suddenly last don't celebrate when God is good to others. Because, you see, those who are envious, they... They always see the world as an unfair place, that it's like, well, I didn't get exactly what I deserve, or their mentality is, I deserve better. And you might look at that and think, well, 
no big deal. Envy's not the worst of the sins, right? I mean, that's not such a, a big deal. But remember what Jesus said to his disciples in another place. When the disciples and the religious leaders are there and they're having this discussion, probably a heated discussion about ceremonial hand washing and what it is that we put into our mouths once, you know, if we wash our hands or not wash our hands, the way that you were supposed to do in the law of Moses. And Jesus says to them, it's not the, thing that, it's not the things you put into your mouth that defy you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. And so in Mark chapter 7, verse 20 to 23, it says this, and then he added, this is Jesus speaking, it's, it is what comes from inside that defiles you from within you out of a person, out of a person's heart. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy. There it is. Slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. So Jesus is saying these are the things that stir up within us. These are the things that defile us, not the things that go into our mouths, whether we wash our hands or not, but it's the things that actually reveal our heart that come out of us. And so as we think about this parable, we realize that it's not a parable that just simply teaches, well, everybody gets the same reward. That's actually not what it's teaching about. It's also not about salvation or gaining eternal life because salvation, as we know, is not earned by works, and yet these workers each worked and got paid for their work. But rather, it's a parable that shows us, first of all, of God's extravagant grace, that His grace is surprising, that we worship a generous God, more generous than we would ever know or imagine, especially to those who don't deserve it. And it's also a parable that reveals what's inside of us as we examine it and as we allow the parable to examine us. The envy that lurks in the hearts of each one of us when we see God's grace and God's mercy maybe poured out on other people and we think, well, they don't really deserve that. And we feel a little bit of that thing rising up within us again. And we wonder, when is it my turn? Remember Peter's outburst earlier? What will we get? You know, two things, I think, can help us tame this enemy from within that can defile us. Two things that can act as the antidote to envy, and those two things are gratitude and servanthood. Gratitude and servanthood. This parable is really a lesson about gratitude and about what motivates us to work and to serve in the kingdom. It's about gratitude towards God, recognizing that all that we are and everything that we have and all that we've ever hoped to accomplish is a pure gift. And the only appropriate response is gratitude towards God. And for me, most mornings, one of my spiritual disciplines is to try to live this out, beginning on my knees in prayer, acknowledging this truth and thanking God for all His blessings and giving it all back to Him again and again. Gratitude is also gratitude towards others, recognizing uh, what they, letting others know that you see how you've, they've helped you and the things that they have done, and telling them in specific ways how it is that they've helped you and encouraged you or whatever the case may be, and then thanking them. And so gratitude towards others comes as we bless other people when they get ahead. When God pours out his mercy and grace on them in a way that we maybe don't feel it even in our own lives, but we actually are happy for them and rejoice with them and bless them. And we say, good for you, or I'm so thankful for you. Because, you know, gratitude impels our worship and is to be the motivating driver behind why we serve 
which is what we see in this parable. And as one author said, gratitude is the response of the believing person to the goodness of God's grace in creation and redemption, making gratitude the authentic hallmark of the disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are called to live with thankfulness every day, with gratitude, because of what Jesus has done, the King of the kingdom. And this parable teaches and reminds us of that because it holds up a mirror to these people to see something really specific in their hearts and what's coming forward. So we need to stop focusing on what others have done to us and rather focus on what Jesus has done for us. And the second antidote is envy, or of, of envy is servanthood. The second antidote of envy is servanthood. Serving others, serving God, doing our jobs in a way that reflects gratitude for what God has done. And you know, when servanthood is leaked with gratitude in understanding the gift of the position that we hold as members of the kingdom of God, we can take our eyes off ourselves. It's only then that we actually can. Because otherwise it kind of rises up, if we're honest, different motives within us about why it is that we even serve. But it's when we actually can keep our eyes on Jesus and who He is and what He has done that we can actually be free of ourselves and serve God with freedom and gratitude. But we need to see this from the vantage point of the landowner. Jesus is the King of the kingdom. It's about Him and His mission in the world that He invites us into. And this truth that workers are needed for the harvest field and Jesus, even seen in this parable, is inviting workers into the harvest field to come and work in the vineyard. We have the same calling employed by the same generous owner. It is his kingdom, his vineyard, his business. We are merely the laborers from this day to the last. And in this parable, Jesus invites us to look inside and deal with our envy, to serve in his kingdom with gratitude, to rejoice when others get ahead, to rejoice when we see God pour out his generous favor and blessing on others that we think don't really deserve it. And we celebrate with them. We say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. I want to invite the worship team if they would come up. They're going to lead us in a song to begin with about the goodness of God as just a response to how good God is. He is a good, good Father who gives us so many good and perfect gifts, as it says in James. And that as we can understand God's goodness to us, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's going on around us, regardless of whatever is swirling, but when we take our eyes off the human factor, we take our eyes off the things that are happening maybe in our lives or the way things are happening in blessing to other people's lives, and we just look to Jesus and continually keep our eyes on Him, it allows us to live a life of faith and gratitude and service. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for parables like this that hold up a mirror to us if we allow it. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us see what you would have us to see, even to see the small, subtle ways that envy creeps into our lives and out of our hearts and comes out of our mouths and is seen in our attitudes. And Lord, would you forgive us for this envy that so often lurks within. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see what you have done. 
Jesus, your sacrificial love and service of going to the cross, we praise you again today and we give you thanks. And God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to see it all around us. Help us also to have the capacity to bless those around us who get ahead, who get what we may think that they don't deserve, but what maybe we deserve. And God, may we continually be ones who bless others and extend your grace because we've received it from you. And so, Lord, we celebrate with others today. We celebrate with you today. Help us to live thankful lives because of who you are and what you've done. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.